HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, Heritage Radio Network podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and Sea Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Chase Sinzer. We'll talk to Chase about opening a new wine-centric restaurant in New York City and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Chase Sinzer has been around, and I mean that in a good way, he has worked with Union Square Hospitality at Mayolino, with John Fraser at Narcissa, David Chang at Momofuku, Momofuku Co., where he met now partner Joshua Pinsky, and they received two Michelin stars. Chase hit the West Coast at legendary Michael's in Santa Monica and Cesar Ramirez's chef's table at Brooklyn Fair. He also did a little retail at Crush Wine in New York City. Chase Sinzer and Joshua Pinsky followed on a plan and fulfilled a dream, opening Claude, a European restaurant and wine bar in the East Village, to overwhelming critical acclaim this past summer. Welcome to the Great Nation, Chase. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so we're talking to Chase remotely. Chase and I were going to get together at the Heritage Studios, but we ran into a little glitch. So we're doing uh, this interview remotely via our Zencaster app. Um, so Chase, I want to, as always, I want to give uh, our podcast listeners a little background. You know, as I noted in the intro, you work with some great people, but take a few minutes to tell me about your journey and life and wine, you know, that got you really today to Claude. Um, 
you know, what got you into hospitality? Were there any influences, you know, quickly take me through that chronological, you know, work line, you know, any other notable stuff, please talk about. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I mean, for me, I think it starts even beyond the working age. Um, you know, Claude is a reference to my mom. Mm. That's her nickname. Uh, she owned a restaurant when I was a kid, my father, had a separate job and the restaurant was thankfully for us, like another source of, of income and almost a side project for the family. But we had it for about 10 years. Where was it? It was in Wayne, New Jersey. I grew up in okay. Cedar Grove, New Jersey. I'm in Franklin Lakes right now. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. So we were right, right in the heart of Wayne, New Jersey right. on Hamburg Turnpike. Sure. Um, I was called the grill and it was like, a straight up American bar and grill with absolutely no relation and aesthetics to uh, the grill here in New York. Right. Um, okay. It was like a hamburger and hot dog joint on the highway. Okay. And I was like a little 12 year old kid and I worked there and it was just awesome. I, I thought it was really fun to be there. I always loved food. When I was a kid, I, I basically had my birthday presents were going out to dinner here in the city and that was the spark. That was the idea of like, this is something I really enjoy. And then when I got out of college, Myelino was amazing. It's where wine became a thing. First with Liz Nicholson, who's now at Frankly and the wine bar, and then Jeff Kellogg. Right. Um, and Jeff, I was kind of lucky enough that they both took an interest in me. Um, and Jeff was my start into like more standardized court of master sommelier stuff. Um, so more, more formal-ish? Exactly, man. Um, that was like, okay, I want to pursue this path in restaurants for sure, but wine is the decision. And John Reagan was there at the time, and wow. Sabato Cigaria. <laughs> Great guys. And I mean, it was incredible. Like there, there was an amazing group of people there and – at that point, you could sell 74 Rinaldi for $295. Yeah. And that was something that we were lucky enough to be able to taste and, and get this backbone and structure of classical Italian wine at that restaurant that was it's so difficult today in so many ways. But I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, and that was really this, that was the move. That was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I worked with Ashley Santoro for a bit at Narcissa in my first kind of sommelier role. And then with Jordan Salcido and Dave Chang and Su Wong Ruiz over at Co, where I met Josh. So that was like, that was the foundation for everything. And, and Jordan and everyone over at Momo were nice enough to kind of eventually give me some creative freedom in creating the list over at Co. So that, that was really where everything started to take off for and me. And Co, terms of Co was design. hot as anything then, right? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was so, so you, an amazing experience. You, you get all the recognition. Um, you're lucky that you met up with such incredible people, you know, collectively knowledgeable, passionate. I mean, I, I think that has a, a big play on your ascent, you know, being around those people early on, which is a nice thing. Um, I mean, each place was so uniquely different. I mean, did I guess a lot of these jobs helped shape your vision for when the time came, you know, to sort of 
put together what your own restaurant looks like? I mean, do you take something from each place? I mean, what you said previously is the key to the whole thing. You know, the word is lucky uh, to be around those people when you get to have the chance, which again is a lot of luck. Uh, Of course, there's work involved, but, you know, you're lucky enough to get a chance to do your own thing. It's an accumulation of what you've learned from all these great people. Um, I think about Jeff and I think about Jordan and I think about Cesar um, and the way that they not only did wine or just their entire outlook on restaurants informs the vision we try to put forward today. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, I've eaten at Brooklyn Fair. I mean, Cesar is just like on a different level, right? Zero doubt about that. It's just crazy. Um, All right, so we'll get into... uh, Claude and, you know, some of the effects of all that stuff in a minute. But tell me if I'm not crazy, but it seems like there's like a renaissance of new restaurant openings in New York City since the pandemic, which I think is wonderful. I'm just curious, you know, why such a good blow up and like, why now? I mean, has everyone been chomping at the bit or, you know, do you agree with me, first of all? Yeah, for sure. Um, What I know from both myself and friends is that people did a lot of the legwork for these openings pre-pandemic, whether it was raising capital or finding a space. And I think what happened is you saw people that came out of this, and the only thing that happened with these spaces is they went down in value. So you had this opportunity now where if you were eyeing a certain space, you maybe lost $40 a square foot on it, and you still kept your cash around, Now you have this opportunity where you have demand that skyrocketed from diners because of pent-up demand. You have lower capital costs on the space itself, and hopefully you retain the capital to move forward. So whether it's a wine-centric spot or not, the business model looks more attractive than it did pre-March 2020. So to that point, before the pandemic, the market was healthy where – People in the biz were trying to get capital together, put new concepts out there, and the openings were rolling along, right? Exactly. Okay. And I think there's – yeah. So then you really get hit hard with the pandemic, and then you explain why. I mean, the phenomenon is similar. I mean, that's why people are traveling now. You know, they just didn't do anything for two years or whatever. Do you – Exactly. Do you, do you have, I know you are so deep in, you know, having opened the restaurant and running it. Do you ever worry about current, current, you know, macroeconomic conditions, you know, inflation, or you're not feeling that yet? I mean, I I worry about it every moment of my life. But is it Um, affecting business yet or at all? No, I'm more focused on the future of it, I would say, and and how we plan for whether it is something that's an economic slowdown of massive proportions or inflation ends up being something that we can alter. I can't obviously speak to that. That's not my lane, but it's something that I'm not seeing in the current moment because of that pent-up demand, but I'm trying to plan for in the future. Right, which is, you know, a fair answer. The other thing is, you know, you have a nice size restaurant, but it's not massive. I mean, you could probably do the covers in a New York City, even, you know, when things are a little tight, just because it is New York City. So, I mean, hopefully that'll play out. All right. I want to talk to you about opening the restaurant. 
I want to talk about doing it in New York City today. I want to get into, you know, the inspiration, the evolution, and the process of doing this. And, you know, I told you off air, one of my motivations for the show was really getting into this because I think you're a guy, you know, that has the background, has the vision, you are on the ground and, you know, you put everything you have into it. So let's, let's get started. Tell me when and how the idea of Claude came about. Obviously, from your answer before, it's been floating around for years. Yes, the idea of a restaurant being my own and my own with Joshua has been a long time. Uh, probably the genesis is like 2016, 2017. Um, the initial idea would have been larger uh, than what we currently have. Uh, and the space that we had looked at before the pandemic was larger. It was the Schiller's Liquor Bar space. Right, which is big. It's now a Shake Shack as of... Right. Uh, I don't think they officially open, but like I walk by it all the time and I just get like frustrated seeing it. Right. Um, so that would have been like 75 seats. Um, we have 45 about here. Uh, and I mean, overall... It's not that different. It's really just a scope thing. I, I hope that, and I think that this size has been beneficial to us, both aesthetically, control-wise, um, the ability to do your book and have a labor cost at, at this size is actually a little bit easier. Right. Um, but it was all about simple food, great wine. That was the idea. We want simple, thought over food. We'll get to all of that. Um, how long did you know Josh when you realized, hey, this is a dude I could do stuff with? Um, I thought pretty quickly I felt that way. And then that was probably like three years into our relationship okay. when it started really getting serious. Right. Um, where both of you had a feel for each other that you could stand by side by side and do something. Yeah. I mean, for me, Josh is just a tremendous manager people want to work for him. And that's the most important thing for me. And you see it now in the labor climate we're in it's very beneficial to have someone whose entire staff from other restaurants wants to work here with him. Um, th that's an important point, which I wanted to cover. So to that point, has it been tougher to hire people these days or with a guy like Josh spearheading that, it makes it easier. And do you also have to rethink, you know, how you treat employees now, how you compensate them, the environment you put them in, you know, cause we heard a lot of stuff come out during the pandemic about, you know, how rough the business is. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing you've heard lately is how tough it is, you know, to get personnel. Tell me, tell me about that part with the restaurant. Yeah. I mean, so again, in a macro way, there's zero doubt that we're in a tighter labor market in terms of hospitality. Um, you never want to be the guy that says it hasn't been terribly hard when the macro is hard, but one of that reasons is Josh. Uh, so overall in history, <clears throat> what we're really making up for here is the fact that cooks weren't paid well enough. Um, that's, that's the major factor that we're discussing. We have loyalty through staff because of Josh. And of course we're paying more than we did pre pandemic. Uh, that's a result of inflation and also cultural adjustments in the hospitality industry. But for me, they should have been making that much money 
beforehand. Agreed. And we're just coming, we're just coming out of a, a time where we didn't pay enough. So that's we're we're in a good labor position because eighty percent of our staff worked with us at other restaurants. Right. So with 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 the right cultural environment, the right guy leading it, paying people a little more money. I mean, that is doing the job or it's still even a struggle with that. It's doing the job for us. We have no, we have no complaints uh, on that front. Right. So, I mean, it just shows you how important people are. Um, When you guys started out, did you guys like have a business plan? I mean, was it something in your mind or was it a little more formal? Is it something? Yeah, for sure. We had a business plan. I, I'm kind of the, I would leave that charge and it's stuff I like doing. And um, it was very informative for me and exciting to be able to draft it. Right. Um, is this, you know, a plan you pondered over, you know, for days, months, years? I mean, details and all of that, that you could see now? hundred percent. Yes. Um, financial projections, et cetera. Nothing like preparation, right? All right. So, yep. Tell me about initial steps. So, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? You, you know, you have the idea, you have the partner, you know, you, maybe you got the partners, you got a little capital. What are, like, take yourself back. What are the first things you literally have to do to get this, you know, thing going? So you, it all looks pretty funny now, but. First, you just got to get over the fear of how in the hell am I going to figure out how to do this? Okay. Um, and then it's like, do I find a space first? Do I ask people for capital first? Um, and they both inform each other. They're, they're really in a symbiotic relationship. They're like triangle of the relationship is the concept, the space, and the money. And all three of those things have to work together to create something successful. So... If you don't have this, if you have this grand restaurant in your head, but you can only afford a small space and there's only small spaces on the market, they don't talk to each other. So we looked at a ton of spaces. We asked a, a large amount of people for, for money. We had some success on both fronts, but it took a long time. Um, and then we found some things that worked together and that was Schiller's and it was a few investors and it was this kind of slightly larger version of this concept. Right. That was the start of the process. Okay. Then. Then the pandemic happens. Right. So all best laid plans at that point out the window. Right. So I'm like two years into Brooklyn fair at that point. Um, wait, wait, back up for a second. So you realize that this whole thing is iced. Um, you're at Brooklyn Fair or you take the job there? I'm I'm at Brooklyn Fair. I've been there for about two years. Okay. So it's like Mar- March 11th of 20, we met and came to terms with the landlord at Schiller's. Okay. March 13th was our last day at Brooklyn Fair. Okay. All right. So then what happens? Then we, like everybody else, are on unemployment. Okay. And we're like, how... How are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? Of course, was a thought for a minute. Are and if we could do it? Yeah. yeah. Are we going to be able, like, will we have the money to do this? Will we be able to fight? I mean, at that point, like, you know, did we know if restaurants were going to look the same? Um, right. Everyone's building outdoor structures. Do we incorporate that into a business plan when we don't even have one? Right. Um, 
So we're very lucky again, and that, that'll be a theme throughout this process of good partners and being lucky enough to have them support us is we kept a large chunk of capital. We lost a chunk. So we we're like, okay, we had this much money. Now we have this much money. We want a little bit of a smaller thing if we're going to do this. You fast forward about a year, Josh is working as a private chef. Um, I'm aligned with Crush, which I, I still work with Crush as okay. well um, on the side. And and we're like, we can, we can do this. Let's start looking at spaces again. And that that was like, okay. And we've looked at this space previously. The, the space you're in now, you had seen before, you're saying? Exactly. Okay. So. And then we, we came back and it was lower and it looked more attractive. And we knew we had enough money to get this space up and running. So we made the leap. Um, two things to that. When you do that, you have to sort of time out a project, right? I mean, from that point, are you like, well, this thing will come into fruition in like a year, two years, or you don't know because you can't control things? How do you time things out? So I knew what our rent abatement would be, which is the period of time that you don't have to pay rent when you're in construction, right. just for anybody that's not signing commercial leases. And I knew that if we did this in an organized fashion, there's only so much you have control over in construction in any city, but especially New York, um, that this project was a small enough aesthetic flip. One of, I mean, the main reason for this restaurant. So it used to be something called Ikenari Steakhouse. Right. Um, and there's two things. That company built a really amazing hood system here because they were a steakhouse right. underground. Uh, they have amazing makeup air unit, which is how you get fresh air into the restaurant. And then downstairs, they have this incredible dry aging room that we cut up and made into a wine cellar and a food holding unit in a wall. Right. So I knew we wanted a lot of wine. I knew we needed a hood system that could work here that we didn't have to drop. So that stuff costs like 100 to 200 grand. And we're like, cool, we're ahead of the game. If we have this... So let's do it. So we had six months of rent abatement. We didn't have a general contractor because we don't want to pay them. So I was kind of the GC on the project and I've never built anything in my life. And we, we worked really hard. We were here every day. We like would sit at this little folding table amongst a lot of dirt and ash. And we had a guy who had never built a restaurant in New York be the designer. He's like a custom fabricator of furniture. And we all kind of put our heads together and got it done in six months. Did, you know, it sounds like it could it's a work. a lot of luck again. I was just going to say, it sounds like it could work, which it did, or it could blow up. So I guess besides some lucky. minor BS, I mean, every everybody's sensibilities work together, right? Oh, man, yeah. The guy that helped us, so we were introduced to him through very good friends at the Four Horsemen. He did some work for some of them. Right. Which and is a cool place. he's like now one of our great friends. He's just an amazing guy with a great aesthetic and he worked his ass off for us. Can and he build a business he, from this? I mean, can he use this as a, uh, totally good. Um, I, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. It'd be great. Yeah. Now I understand why this particular place, you, you know, the Ikenari with the hoods and the way it was set up, but did you have this mentality that you had to be downtown or you had to be east or west or it was wherever the real estate took you? We wanted like above Fidei, below 23rd okay. Street, 
um, like a downtown restaurant somewhat centered is how I would describe it. But we're pretty open. Right. And how did how did this place come about? I mean, just in looking, I don't know if straight you up. straight up. That was it. Yeah. So I, I spent our countless hours on loopnet.com, 42floors.com, um, tower brokerage. I'd go to other brokers' websites. I That was what I did all day long. Do you remember not that long ago, the housing market, you know, people, seven people would bid on one house and bid it up. Was the real estate market for restaurants competitive then or you, you just had to get out and find them? I mean, were you losing stuff? You said prices were down. How'd that work? It was not terribly competitive. No. Um, I think there was still a lot of fear. I think we were like at the tail end of of fear still taking hold of like signing a lease in a commercial way. Um, there was other interest, but I wouldn't describe the market overall as competitive. Right. Now talk to me about budget. Did you, the, the numbers are arbitrary, but like, did you say, okay, we're going to spend 200 grand and you wound up spending less or double. I mean, how did you do budget wise? We came in, um, let's call it, 15% under budget. Wow. Um, again, through a lot of luck and timing um, and being our first thing. And like the number one horror stories you hear are, you know, off schedule, over budget. We didn't, we didn't do this. Like, this is not Brooklyn fair. This is like, we didn't spend crazy money on stoves. We got every penny we could and we tried to keep a hold of it as much as we could. And, we're now doing things like upgrading or exactly. Yeah. Very lightly. Yeah. yeah. So you pretty much hit it right. And you're just doing some tweaks now because you figured the flow out, right? Yeah, exactly. The fear of not having revenue for me was far too much to bear. So when we now had some revenue, we make small tweaks, but still try to be as conservative as possible. And again, we're, we're making it up as we go along. We're trying to make the right decisions and I'm sure we're making a million mistakes, but we're, we're trying to learn from them as quickly as we can. I think that's life, but you know, it sounds like, cause you guys have the experience and you're on the ground, you know, you're pretty much, you got it in the right direction. Did you open when you opened, you opened when? Summertime? When in the summer? August 2nd, yeah. Okay, when you opened on August 2nd, did you open with the same food concept, you know, that you set out to execute initially? Or did things always evolve? It, sir, I mean, in, in a way, I guess the answer to your question is both. Okay. Um, so I think the nexus of like, we want to serve soulful, satisfying, simple food holds true. Okay. I think that when you get into the restaurant and you start cooking and you do everything and you taste everything a hundred times, the dishes that you were certain you were going to serve, maybe you actually don't have in the beginning. Right. Um, you see what works and you take it from there. And, you know, that's Josh's domain first and foremost. And he's been as good as anybody could hope for as a partner and as a manager in terms of making those decisions. You you did, you know, a pretty nice little description, you know, with soulful, well-made, but be more specific. I mean, following what type of cuisine or influences? Sure. I mean, it's always tough to describe something as what it's not, but I will tell you this, that 
you know, we met at Co. Right. And, and then I really went to Brooklyn Fair for a number of years. I was at Co. for a number of years. That's expensive. It's it's artful. It's right. there's tweezers involved. Right. Um, we just didn't want any of that. We wanted this to be when somebody describes the food. You know, we give bread to every guest that comes to the restaurant for free, and we make that bread here in the restaurant. Wait, is that not a thing anymore? That's right, man. It's not when I grew up. Of course, you get bread. You, you get all down. you want. So we wanted to do that, and like to be honest it's kind of fucking crazy to do in terms of how much time it takes to make bread and do it right. It's the same starter we used at Co. We've had the starter for 11 years. Wow. Um, I just always think about the food as like French in its basis. And it's the kind of food you want to drag bread through. Right. Yeah. Like that, like I want sauces on the bottom of the plate. You drag bread through it. That's what Josh has always described. And we've, you know, we all love fancy stuff. We all kind of came from that school but this is supposed to be heartfelt in the only, the only way to describe it is bread dragging. Well, it's funny. I, I'm not sure hearty is the right word, but if you're dragging bread, there's a heartiness to it. It's hearty. So, it's hearty. yeah, I mean, it's very it fulfilling. It make you laugh and smile. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a nice thing. Um, what what um, didn't you bring in some family recipes didn't like your mom influence you on some stuff here josh and my mom does in the front of house for sure and then josh has some you know his 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 family recipes are the chocolate cake that somehow blew up on tiktok yeah i don't know i saw that it's a a layer cake right yep and then so you make that in-house Oh yeah, one guy. So you're baking those rounds and you're separating them and you're frosting them and spinning them and everything all day long. Yeah, yeah his name is Neil and he's an amazing baker. He bakes our bread, he bakes the cakes. So we owe him that. And he worked with Josh at Nishi and thankfully was interested in working with us because we wouldn't be able to do the baking without. So if you're serving like ten desserts or like six or seven of them, the chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly, for sure, dude. So we pretty much we only right? have yeah, we have twelve slices a night, and that's that's where we cut it, and then hopefully people don't get too upset when we sell out. But that's where we're at right now. Ah, I didn't realize. So you have a limited amount of slices, and I guess if you have friends that come and you say, "Listen, you better uh, you better put a mark on one of those chocolate cakes, or you're going to be dead." That's pretty cool. So that's something to look out for. All right, so before we talk about the wine, because, you know, very interesting wine place, I'm trying to figure out, because, you know, in, in reading reviews and stories and all that, is it a wine bar with food or is it a restaurant with wine? I mean, how, where does that settle into? Um, it's a restaurant with wine. Okay. Um, that's where I stand on it, but what's most important is what people describe it as. So if they want to call it that or this, that's fine with me. Um, I think it has the energy of a wine bar, but hopefully the experience can be what anyone wants it to be. If they want to pop in, we have a little counter in the front with six seats. We leave for walk-ins and have a glass of wine and a snack. Maybe that's defined as a wine bar because we offer that. And then in the back, you know, we do private parties in the back to we have like a couple this week for some friends that means they can build a menu with josh and celebrate their birthday for the whole night they're there for five hours we can do that too so i think we're flexible that That, that's awesome and you know what 
you don't have to define it. You know, it actually yeah. checks a lot of boxes and fulfills whatever needs. So that's a good place to be in. Chase, we have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to get a little more into the wine program and some wine stuff in general. We're talking to Chase Sinzer. Chase, along with his partner, Joshua Pinsky, um, have just opened Claude, um, a new restaurant in New York City. Um, when we get back, we'll talk, uh, like I said, about the wine program. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going in here on the old barns or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery for a lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else, of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a barn or restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit S-O-M-E-R-S-E-T-N-J.org. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Chase Sinzer. Chase Sinzer from Claude Restaurant in New York, brand new. All right, let's talk about the wine program. There's a rumor that you have a thousand bottle cellar under the restaurant. We do. Um, That's a pretty cool thing. You don't hear that a lot all the time for a smaller restaurant. Tell me about that setup physically. So basically, Ikenari had this dry age room ah, that was right. massive. Um, it was it was about 375 square feet. Wow. And Josh and I put a wall up in between. So there's a more traditional walk-in with its own condenser and temperature control for food. And then there's mine. So you both, you each got a little bone. Josh took 55% for food. I took 45% for wine. Okay. And... What we do is kind of like we said in the beginning in terms of how we did budgeting, you know, one day myself and sous chef here at Gura Chef Cuisine, our buddy Nick, uh, me and him built all the wine racks, screwed them into the wall, um, 
and did it ourselves. Now that we have a little bit of revenue, we're going to add even more. So we'll have some the same guys that worked with us at Co. will give us some racks for the middle and install them. Nice. And that'll take us to about 2,000 bottles of storage. Um, so we have all this storage. Um, it's amazing in terms of what we wanted because we wanted to be able to have a lot of wine here, but not necessarily print it all at one time. So how many selections are you showing or making available on a daily basis? About 200. Okay. And so I want you to tell me about the list, but I'm curious about, you know, one part of the process. Now, did you have, did you go out and start from scratch and buy everything? You know, did you have stuff stored away, personal stuff? I mean, how do you build, you know, the first, you say you have a thousand bottles, you know, where do the first two, three, four, five hundred bottles come from? Is that all buying, you know, from the uh, trade and everything? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been building the idea of this program, even with specifics, uh, for, for quite a while. Um, I've worked with the same couple people in terms of private sellers. Right really at Co and at Brooklyn Fair. And then there are some additions here at Claude. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's that. There's some private brokered stuff. And then, of course, regular channels of distribution of Michael Skernick or Grand Cruz. How much of the, um, the, the former stuff, you know, the collections and all that, I mean, how, how much of that, is that a nice chunk of, you know, the wines? Those are some of the interesting wines? Yeah, quite a bit is, yeah. the, is the fair answer. Um, majority is possible but definitely quite a bit right right so that that obviously that's your compass and to you that makes the uh list interesting to be able to you know go back to that stuff now tell me tell me about the list as far as a mission or a philosophy um you know, small producers, I mean, do we lean towards natural wines? You know, do you feel because of the cuisine, you have to lean more region specific? You know, how's the initial setup on that? So the list is broken down two ways. Um, the list that, that people receive, about 200 selections, is it's listed alphabetical by producer. Okay. Um, and it's separated into champagne and sparkling outside of champagne and then white and red wines from France and white and red wines outside of France. Now the outside of France is the whole world. Um, there's no restrictions on that. And the, the main, the only dogmatic thing here is that a wine is delicious to us, whether that's a, a marquee name or someone that we found at a tasting last week that we want to include alongside that marquee. My, my kind of dream with the list is your, your Rumiers and DRCs are sitting right next to a wine that's $48 on the wine list from a person you haven't heard of. But hopefully if you're a regular here, you've developed trust in us to believe that that wine is world-class in its own way for its price point and its aesthetic. Right. So you're trying to curate that experience and opportunity, you know, with price in mind and trying to wow people, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wine is extremely expensive now. Um, what, what is that is one part of the pandemic? I know. I think people have changed, you know, the way they think about and drink wine. Are people still coming in and ordering, you know, the trophies or like you just said, less, less and less of that? 
I mean, we're, we're very lucky again in that I think we see a really cool diversity of things and our diverse, you know, the people that dine in the restaurant are very diverse as well. We have a lot of my clients and wine regulars and Josh's regulars right. from over the years. They're wine savvy people. Certain, yeah, and totally. And this like these are blue chip trophy drinkers. Right. And, and that's that's one side of a program. And being able to offer those is both significant for your staff to be able to taste those things because there are less and less things that happen nowadays. Right. Um, but then also we have ton we have people that have come here four or five times. They want to try different glasses of wine. They want, you know, it seems that a lot of people are interested in skin contact wines or things that are very refreshing and lean. And we try to offer producers in that space that we think are becoming the benchmarks for that as well. So to that point, did you make that call or the the market, the customer dictated that you need to have that and move in that direction? I think it's a mix of both. Okay. And I think you should try to listen to yourself. I mean, listen, like I worked in super classical programs. Um, that's not necessarily in vogue. Um, right. That being said, I always drank stuff. It's not like I was drinking crazy stuff when I wasn't at work. So I wanted to be able to reflect both the classics that I was lucky enough to have access to because of the places I worked at and the stuff I drank either at restaurants I went to or at my home that I think is delicious and worthwhile. So I, I hope the list reflects both of those experiences. Right. Delicious is a big, uh, you know, thing you want to accomplish. Is it, is it harder to manage, you know, 250, 200 selections a day than being at a big restaurant with a bigger offering? 100% harder. One, so much harder than, yeah, I mean, the other two lists I wrote in my life are over a thousand. This is a quarter of the size. What do I keep on? I don't really have verticals. Um, so it's, it's a lot of editing, and that's always the hardest part. Right. Does it limit experimentation? Like you just don't have the room, you know, to bring in whatever, you know, wines from Styria or whatever. I, I guess I try to lean, since we have all this wine here that's not printed, I'm happy to, if somebody, part of the whole game is people that have interests that aren't printed, we have a discussion. I don't even, they can come downstairs. I do it with them all the time. Take right. a look through. It's there for them. So it's there. Yeah. And like, I love to have the list reflect the diversity of options. And if it means... You know, let's say there's five producers I think must be represented from Bordeaux or from Burgundy or from the Rhone. Maybe I only have three or four of them printed because, you know, it's it's a producer from Australia that I fell in love with. And that's fine, just based on physical space, because if somebody's like, hey, do you have X here? I say, sure, let's go take a look. Right. That makes sense. I mean, if it's there and people are inquiring or you sense they're looking for it, it's there for them. Um, I I think you alluded to this, but I want to make sure. Do you do you do a buy the glass program? We do. We do um, about five whites, five reds, a couple sparkling wines that go from uh, eleven bucks or twelve bucks a glass to like twenty two. Does that is that fun for you? Does that give you leeway outside of everything we just discussed? You know, to bring in certain producers and wines. Uh, totally. I mean, we should try to have fun with it. We did a guest dinner last night here in the restaurant where we did a pairing. And 
it was fun to be able to do that again. I haven't done it since Brooklyn Fair, which crazily enough is, you know, what, two and a half years ago now. Um, yeah, totally. Something different. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I always ask people this. I mean, for you and for the restaurant, I mean, are there any wines, winemakers, you know, regions, you know, that are really exciting you now, whether it's new or stuff within traditional regions? I mean, anything of note to talk about that you could think of? I mean, the the center and core of this wine program is Burgundy. Okay. Um, there is no doubt that like what we seek to do here revolves around Burgundy and the Rhone Valley. And, and those are the two things that we kind of pride ourselves on having the classics of. Right. Um, but then beyond that, I mean, there are so many great people making great wine, whether it's in the Jura, in every region of the Loire, Right. Um, in Australia, like Joshua Cooper's wines are so exciting to me. And so I, I think even though we're very specifically focused on building out a great selection of wines from Burgundy and the Rhone, we are almost equally focused on finding things that aren't as canonical as those. Right. Well, that's a, that's a great thing. Um, do you, how much collaboration do you and Josh do on the wine and the food? I mean, you guys have been at this for a while, so it sort of happens naturally, or do you really need to take some time, you know, when you're doing the list or buying wine or, you know, bringing stuff in? You know, I mean, Josh might laugh at this. I, Josh is not, uh, he's interested in wine. He's certainly learned a lot. Um, and is just a genuinely smart, curious person, but he doesn't really need to, he's not as interested in like asking me what I'm buying when it comes to food. Um, he's crazy great at collaboration. We taste everything together. We come up with ideas together. Um, and to have a partner, especially on the BOH side that respects you enough to taste things with you and talk to you about it is, is it's a rare thing. And it just shows that, you know, his ego is not something that gets in the way of like, let's do this in a collaborative way. On the wine side, I'm lucky enough. We have a really great sommelier here. Her name is Julia Schwartz. Um, and she worked at Res Dora before this. And she's, you know, I, I'm not capable of running the business and, and doing everything else on every detail that I used to do on the wine program. So without her, it would be very difficult to, to run the program as well as I hope we are. Right. Well, it sounds like Josh is a good partner that way. You know, he's interested and he cares, but he's not getting in the way and he diverse to you. I'm just curious about Julia for a second. Red Czar may be one of the most awesome restaurants in New York, but I don't see it as, and I could be wrong, you know, this deep wine-centric place. Was wine, I, I mean, wine for their food is, you know, incredibly important, but is wine a thing at that restaurant the way it is, you know, at Claude? I don't really even know the answer to that, to be honest with you. Do you understand I, the question, I, though? For sure. Yeah. Um, See, I can't figure it out. And it's not for you to answer. It's, you know, I, I, it's sort of like Peter Luger's. You know, you're going to go and get a good steak and there's a crap wine list. Do you accept that? I'm not saying that Zora's wine list is crap, but, you know, nobody's talking well, I, about it. I think what happened... I mean, the truth of all this is like 
in this kind of macro labor shuffle, everybody who's probably been on your show or is a mutual friend of you or I, or somebody I came up with, you know, they made a decision. Are they going to work in retail? Are they going to work in distribution? Are they going to try to open their own thing? There's very few floor sommeliers or wine directors in that, that really had a similar trajectory to myself or anybody else that like worked at Myelino in, in 2012. Right. Um, so when you looked out there, what you're looking for is not necessarily the way it used to be, which was like, oh, people worked at XYZ restaurant. They tasted XYZ wine. You just someone who's hungry to learn about wine and has a good floor presence and is organized. I think I agree. The whole model has changed. Certification is BS. I mean, listen, it's what it's really about. And it should have always probably been this way is are you hungry and are you interested in learning and are you down to put in the work of studying, getting it, tasting, most importantly, meeting the guests that are going to be the vehicles for you that are coming to your restaurant. They love wine. They're excited about wine and developing those relationships. That's what being a sommelier should be about at the end of the day and making people happy. I th- I wish it was always that. I hope it stays that way. And you're right about that. Um, we got to wrap up. I have a thing called the wine list, which I want to do with you before we go. But I guess it's fair to say at this point that Burgundy is your wheelhouse. So tell me and my listeners, how do I drink Burgundy on a budget? Or, you know, how do I look for value in Burgundy? How do I enjoy Burgundy, you know, and, and not have to buy a bottle of Rumier? What should I yes. be thinking about? How do I do non, this? Non-mortgaged bottles of Burgundy. Right. Uh, I'll give you like two names. I think the guys at Geno Boulanger are making fantastic bottles of white wine that while not, you know, crazy cheap, can be found under $100 on nicely priced wine lists. So wait, let's, and, let's spell. For, it's G-E-N-O-T? G-E-N-O-T hyphen B-O-U. L-A-N-G-E-R. Okay. Uh, I, I agree with you on that producer. They're in a good, you know, sweet spot price and quality. Um, and we poured them by the glass when we opened the restaurant. Okay. So, and then on the red side, uh, Jerome Galleron, uh, G-A-L-E-Y-R-A-N-D. Um, our good friend, Brian Garcia, his new company. Core oh, Porter. did Brian find these guys and bring him in? So, yeah, Jerome's bringing them in. Or pardon me, Brian's bringing Jerome in. He's a good dude. I just saw Brian. Nice. Yeah. And like those are wines that like if you want to catch the Burgundy bug and you want to know what people are excited about, again, these aren't crazy affordable, but they are a hundredth the price of the blue Yeah. Ticket. Yeah. Nice. I mean, you know, I would advise people to drink other stuff if, you know, price is really the issue. But if they want to get into Burgundy. Now on the Galeron... Is that a, like a Bourguignon Rouge? Is that a, what kind of wine is that? So if you wanted to start there and, and have that be it, he makes, you know, wines in the Cote de Nuit in the north. Okay. But yeah, he can be as affordable as that. You know, his Gevray Chambertin, Village, the VV is awesome. And they're just great wines. They, wow. They're wines of purity. They're wines that taste like Pinot Noir. Um, yeah, he makes a Bourgogne Pinot as well. Those are uh, good recos, and I'm going to post those. Um, Chase, before we wrap up, 
We do a thing called the wine list. I've been asking my guests the same five questions for almost 300 interviews. Um, we also taste wine on air, but because you and I didn't get together in person, um, you know, we're going to pass on that. So here's the wine list. Five questions. Like I said, same five questions. You know, Raj Parr is answering the same ones you're answering, as says Aaron Iskoff last week and all that. So first question is, what are you drinking now? What are you drinking for yourself, for your curiosity? What are you tasting for the restaurant? What's in your fridge? You know, what's the, you know, as seasons change, you may be tasting stuff. Give me a few things you're tasting. I'll give you the last two wines I tasted at my house that I thought okay. were awesome. Uh, we drank a bottle of wine that you're now seeing on Instagram that's really affordable called Domaine Villet, V-I-L-L-E-T. Okay. Uh, from Arbois in the Jura. Um, old family estate that went organic in the 80s. Like the wine's going to cost like 18 or 20 wow. bucks in the store. And it was delicious. Uh, serious. If you want your Jura wine to taste like wines from the Jura, then this wine is super tasty. That sounds great. Um, What's the other one? Yeah. We drank a Barbera from Elio Sandri, which unfortunately is a little bit hard to get some of the time, but is again, very affordable. Arch traditional producer in Italy, in Piedmont, and it tastes like Piedmontese wines really? in their old school way. That's a good one. That's different. All right. Good ones. Like I said, I'm going to post. Goofy's question on the list, your favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think is a good pairing, but what you like for yourself as a wine. What works? And you know we have a rule. You can't say champagne and oysters. <laughs> Why do I? I want to drink like maybe slightly too cold Burgundy, I want to drink Pinot Noir from Burgundy with a delicious, very simple cheeseburger. That's what I want to drink. Do you think chilling it makes it more compatible with the cheeseburger? Like a, I, I mean, like a vintage, yeah, sure. a, a vintage Burgundy that's room temperature may not be the right play for a cheeseburger, right? Sure. Yeah, I'm okay. laughing because two nights ago we did a dinner and. It was a bunch of guys and they were just joking about, you know, everybody wants their reds a little bit colder nowadays, but yeah, I am, that's, a, the thing. that's like cool. Um, I, I think I am a fan of like, maybe it's poured a degree or two too cold and it comes up a touch and that's a nice cheeseburger pair. I get that. I like that. All right. Third question. I know you've been busy the last five months, but I know you're a real New Yorker and you get around. The question is your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And I want you to cite a few places. These are not necessarily your favorites. You may leave somebody out. It's not on purpose. You know, you mentioned Four Horsemen before, you know, which I think, you know, fits the bill anytime. But give me favorite wine restaurant and a bar where you walk in. The vibe is great. The list is great. The people are great. The knowledge is great. You know, all of that stuff. And I would say Claude, you know, falls under that. But tell me other places you don't mind hanging out that do that. Totally. Well, I appreciate you saying that about Claude. But uh, the Horseman is certainly at the top of that list. Um, I think what Justin and Randy and, and James and them have built over there with Nick doing the food is... Amazing. is about as awesome as it gets. Um, yep. You can taste things that you seek out because you know them 
and you can taste things that you've never had, which is the goal of any great wine program to be able to do both along with delicious, non-fussy food and really professional service. Um, I would always highlight uh, who I think is one of the best dudes in wine and also one of the best dudes, period, James O'Brien over at Popina. Um, I, I mean, it's impossible almost not to. We worked together at Mylino 12 years ago, and we're still friends. And, I just uh, ate at Gus's. It was great. It's, it's great, man. James buys the wine that you want to drink. They cook nice, simple, tasty food. And James is like someone who actually knows the right way to be hospitable to people. And if you don't have an ingredient in house, he'll run out and get it for you to make sure that you're happy. So why not support someone? I I agree with you. And I ask him this every time I see him, I go, how did two guys named O'Brien and McDade open up (laughs) one of the most beloved Italian restaurants in New York? I just don't get that. You know, home run. Anything else come to mind? Those are two good ones if you stop there. I haven't had the chance to fully dine there because of the restaurant opening, but I've drank some wine there when they first opened, but you'd always be remiss to not mention Pascaline and anything she does. So go drink the list at Chambers and learn as much as humanly possible about wine. Listen, you hit probably the classics. You probably hit the best people. And the reason those are the best places are the people and it's the people that make the places. So those are good ones. All right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. When I initially structured the question many years ago, you know, I was curious about guys like Aldo Somme. Like, what was the most expensive rare wine you ever tasted? I, I don't give a crap about that anymore. What I care about is what's the favorite all-time wine of yours in the context of what was the most important wine to you? What was the gateway? What opened your eyes? What made you understand it? What was enlightening? Do you have a wine or two that did that to you? Yeah, for sure. So when you first answer that, when you first ask the question, your brain does automatically go to like sixty-one Petrus. Yeah, and like honestly, like you know, I to work with Ian and Bobby at Crush and work with the group of guys that helped me here at the restaurant. We're super lucky. Obviously that's kind of a theme of this conversation to taste crazy shit, but the wine that will always stick with me as the thing that comes after that is, I actually mentioned it earlier. It's, it's 74 Giuseppe Rinaldi Barolo. Um, and I know that is kind of a crazy, it's definitely a crazy wine nowadays. Um, it was a little bit more affordable back then, but there is no doubt. I remember opening that wine with Jeff Kellogg. That was I had amazing. no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I still don't. We're all still figuring it all out in terms of wine and learning as much as we can. But that, that was the like, okay, this guy ordered this wine. I cannot believe how delicious this is. It was in perfect condition. And I was like, I just want to taste all of this all the time and learn about it and learn about the people behind it and the region that, that was the wine. It'll always stick with me for sure. It's crazy how you remember it and how vividly you remember. And how I could be there at Myelino tasting it with Jeff, and he was probably making fun of me for something, which is great. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, last question, and I think you should be able to handle this one well. I ask all my guests, recommend to me best wine retail, 15 20 22 bucks. Recommend a red, recommend a white. You could do a region, you could do a varietal, a maker. 
what's a good value? You know, my kids are like in their late 20s, 30s, and they can't afford $40, $50 bottles for dinner parties and gifts, but they don't want to bring crappy supermarket wine. How do you woo at 20, 18, 21? What do you think? Totally. I mean, white, my move is always to go to Riesling. Um, okay. Do you have a maker? I mean, like Uli Stein, um, Weisser Kunstler, their Trockens, their dry styles of wine come in between 19 and $24 there you all go. the time. I mean, an Uli Stein at that price, that's a home run. So we'll take that. Sometimes reds seem to be harder to people, but what are you thinking? Trousseau is a name that I would say. So David Trousseau makes uh, an oak coat to bone. Uh, wait, wait, spell for me. T-R-O-U-S-S-E-L-L-E. Um, I never heard of it. It's probably $27 a bottle, so it's a little bit above it. That's but okay. Again, it, as a value for Berg, it's extraordinary, and you get that purity of Pinot that you're looking for. If you want to have a dinner party and spend two seven, that's that's your game. That's that's a home run in that price range, right? Yep, hundred percent. That's a good one. All right. So as I mentioned, I will post these. You know, as we promote the show on social media, I will reveal these to everyone. All right, Chase, we got to wrap up. I got to do a little uh, wrap up and then I want to get a little info from you and then I have to say goodbye. All right, so if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at sbenruby. And on Twitter, at Ben Ruby, I know that's confusing, but you can always get to us there by way of the Grape Nation hashtag. You could follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Chase's wine list um, selections on our social media sites. Chase, if we want to follow you and we want to follow the restaurant on social media, where do we go? Mine is Chase Sinzer, just my name, C-H-A-S-E-S-I-N-Z-E-R. That's that's your personal account? That's my personal account, and the Claude account is Claude underscore NYC, C-L-A-U-D underscore NYC. All right, so we need a little hack here. The restaurant is, you know, hot, good for you, happy for that. If people want to get in there, we want to make them happy. I know you can't solve the problem, but just give us some pointers if we want to get there down the road. Totally. Uh, six seats are available for walk-ins. Okay. They tend to fill up, thank God, pretty, pretty early. So try to eat on the earlier side. And then as every restaurant will tell you, there's cancellations left and right. The resi notification list. I have okay. a bunch of regulars, thank God, that use it all the time. They, they come in day of because they get a cancellation. Like, there put you yourself know. on it. I, I really, you'll get in that way. Don't be discouraged. All right, good news. One last thing. I want to give some friends a plug. Wild World is November 14th. It's 60 natural wine, beer, kombucha, cider, and food producers, all who wild ferment. Heavy on the natural wine. It'll be 12 to 7 p.m. on the waterfront in Red Hook, Brooklyn at Strong Rope Brewery. For more info and a complete list of producers, go to wildworldfestival.com. That's wildworldfestival.com. And 
My friends are bringing La Tabli back to town. It's a celebration of Rhone wines coming to New York City November 15th through the 19th. Go to www.latablienyc.com. That's L-A-T-A-B-L-E-E-N-Y-C.com. For more info on the program of event, including tastings, seminars, and dinners, that's www.latablienyc.com. Chase, we like Rhone wine, so we want to help those guys. Um, all right, I want to thank our guest, Chase Sinzer. I want to thank him. I want to congratulate him. I want to wish him good health and good luck with Claude. Thank you to our engineer, uh, Armin. Feel better. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks, Sam. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.